Okay, guys, you are now. <laughs> it begins. <laughs> Another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey, guys. You're listening to the now monthly podcast about feminist figures in the arts and sciences. I'm recording from down in Virginia, where I'm on traditional Powhatan land. And I'm recording from Philadelphia on traditional Lenape land. Today's episode, we're covering a national Ukrainian treasure of art and the black artist of seismology. Oh, that's earthquakes. Okay. Uh-huh. I, I misheard Milena earlier. And I don't know what I heard, but it was not that. <laughs> it was. <laughs> she thought I was talking about asthma. You said, okay, because it sounded like, uh, you know what? I'm not going to say what it sounded like. <laughs> also, okay, so we've been gone for like a year because like shit happens. Things change. Shit happens. But we're back. We're here. Um, I had the chance to go to my first artist residency, which was amazing. But I feel like an unintended consequence of it is that I might get a late in life diagnosis of like an auditory processing issue, maybe as a form of dyslexia. Maybe. We'll see. What? Wait, what? Yeah. You didn't? What? There were, okay, there were a few things that I was describing about, like, growing up and, like, hearing things and having to spell them out that, like, I've always had a hard time with. And a few other people were like, yeah, I've had a hard time with that, too. But I'm also dyslexic. And I'm like, wait, what? How would that relate? I thought that was different. And they're like, no, no, that's part of it. Are you dyslexic? And there were a few other things. I was like, what about this? And they were like, yep. And I was like, what about this? And they're like, yep. I was like, ooh, I'm going to have to talk to a doctor. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. You didn't tell yeah. me this. At all. Well, I still have to work things out with the doctor. But oh, my God. I was like, who goes to an artist residency expecting something like that? <laughs> I mean, I, oh, I no. guess statistically, you get a bunch of visual art people together. Like Something's bound to click. Yeah, statistically. <laughs> oh, no. Get a lot of visual learners. You might have a few people who have like auditory spots as a weakness, so... Uh, yeah, so I misheard you. I'm not going to say what I thought it was because that's not what it actually was. But okay, cool. Oh, does that mean today you're going to rock my world? Oh my God, make it stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is oh your fault. You introduced me to that Dungeons and Daddies podcast. It was. Uh, <laughs> so now I kind of have a bit of a soft spot for like really dad funny jokes. dad jokes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you could say this is your fault. Oh, my God. My good stuff. I'm out. I'm done. I'm done. Okay. Well, I will try to behave myself, but I don't know. I'm kind of on shaky ground. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. This is like a record for me. I'm on a roll. I... <laughs> you know what? At least I make myself laugh. That's what matters. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> okay. I will. I will behave. So... Have we covered one before? I don't think we have. I think we did. Yeah, um, we did. I think the closest one was Maria Tharp or Marie Tharp. And she was um, mostly about like oceans and how they were formed. Okay. That she, her work came to mind, but I wasn't sure how that related because like ocean and the specter of women being on boats is bad luck. Ooh. 
of the 1970s. (laughs) Yeah, she was a geoscientist that worked mostly in the oceans and how the continents worked and their drift and all that good stuff. Um, This individual was more about the inside of the Earth and, like, the physics behind it. Lots and lots of math. Yeah. Oh, gee, my favorite part. Favorite. Awesome. It's 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 so wonderful, even for me, the science lover. <laughs> <laughs> the look on your face right now, you're just like, oh, I'm dead inside. Uh, it's a lot of, um, like, her work involved a lot of physics and geometry and math, um, which are all things that I did not do well in. So I'm going to do what I can to explain it. <laughs> Well, I mean, I am obviously here for the ride, so I fully support you. And I promise to try to limit my dad jokes to next to nothing. Hopefully I got I got him out of my system by now. It's all good. I never want to filter you. I mean, but we do because that's what editing is for. That's true. Yeah. And I'll be editing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Are you ready to hear about a seismologist and geophysicist? Geophysicist. That sounds so, like, intense. All right. What have you got for me today? Where are we going? (laughs) When are we going? (laughs) We are going to Denmark. Okay. All right. Cool. I'm I'm reading a murder mystery book, and they're just about to head from... Uh, southern part of Sweden down to Copenhagen. Oh, look at you. What I suspect is a human trafficking ring, so we'll find out. Was it also set in 1888? It was not. No, it was set like 20 years ago. Okay, yeah. So she was born in uh, Copenhagen, May 13th, 1888. Her father was an experimental psychologist named Alfred Lehman, and her mom was like a stay-at-home mom. Her name was Ida Torsleff. They had two daughters, a sister and her. Her sister's name was Harriet, and Harriet was a movie writer. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, she was really... Getting in on the early days of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're about to hear about a school that she went to. I don't know how to say the name of it at all. So just letting you know. As a child, Inga was very shy and independent, uh, and this permeated throughout her life. So she loved being alone. She loved focusing on her work. And she attended a school in Feleskolen. You can always just say the region. I don't know. Because I don't even, I barely know the shape of Denmark, let alone Copenhagen, let alone where Feleskolen might be. (laughs) (laughs) But it's in that area. Okay, I just spent way too long looking through Danish pronunciation guides on the internet, and that is what I got. No, go for it, because as you're going to find out, I was doing something similar with Ukrainian pronunciation guides. Oh, no. And I know myself so well. I just put the phonetic spelling for certain things in my show notes. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Just just to help my brain along. Well, this one is written F-A-E-L-L-E-S-S-K-O-L-E-N. You know what? At least it's not in Welsh because it's like they just take all the alphabet like letters and just like toss them together and throw them out. <laughs> and you're expected to pronounce that. You're like, Yeah, oh. and it's just like that's – I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying that's why we haven't done a Welsh artist or scientist like <laughs> – also, maybe that's a little bit why we haven't done one. We're like, I don't want to take that on. That's just like, I'll just find someone from somewhere else. Either way, uh, this school is actually pretty progressive, which 
I mean, that's honestly what Denmark is known to be about. They're usually very progressive in most things. Mm -hmm. Um, But this one in particular looked at uh, girls and boys in the same light. They were all equals. They were able to take the same classes. There were no expected curriculums for either gender. At the time, there were two. That sort of thing. (laughs) I mean, but for like the like late 19th century, early 20th, like that's a big deal. It's huge. Yeah. And honestly, that particular school was it was run by a woman. And that woman was the aunt of Niels freaking Bohr, which means does that mean anything to you? That name? No. Okay. So Niels Bohr is the individual who came up with the model for the atom, like the one you can think about with like the little circle for the nucleus, the rings around it, and the little dots on each ring uh, representing the electron. Okay. Yeah. Like, his aunt was just, like, running a school. <laughs> and, um, actually, Inge was the one who, she's she's been known to say that her father, who was a psychologist and the, the lead of the school, her name was Hannah Adler, those were the two people that had the most influence on her intellectual development. Mm, okay. So, you know, of course, Inge got top marks and everything, including her entrance exam to Copenhagen University. And this was 1907. Okay. So the intent was to study and get the equivalent of a master's in mathematics. Let's take a minute to just cringe there. No, I mean, for 1907, that's really amazing. Like, I know we've covered some of the first women to go to Harvard, I think more particularly in science before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't recall if Harvard was accepting women at that point. I don't think they were. No, I think there were a lot of universities around the world who were like, you can sit in, but you can't get it. And you certainly can't get a master's in it. <laughs> Or, yeah, would have separate institutions just for women with, like, a modified curriculum and degree structure. Exactly. Yeah. No, this was just straight up, like, yeah, we'll thank you. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Right? 1907. Yeah. No wonder they rank as, like, one of the happiest countries in the world. (laughs) I was literally, like, can't – wait, does Denmark take in American doctors? (laughs) I was literally Googling that while looking this up. (laughs) I mean, it's always good to have an exit plan. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Okay. The master's technically is called the Candidate Magisteri. That's just the fancy word for master's, I guess, over there. But she did that for a bit. Fatigue got her, though. Okay. Um, And this makes sense because it got her after four years of studying. So she had essentially done the equivalent of an undergraduate degree Mm -hmm. and then, like, needed to take a break. I don't know if it was, like, two different programs that she was going for. It was one, like, six-year program, but whatever it was, she was like, I need to just take a step back. And 1911 to 1918, she became an actuarial assistant, which is just a whole bunch of math. Okay. So when you say assistant, it's, like, kind of like a TA or, like, a different level? No, I think... She just did a lot of math for, like, financial stuff. Because remember, she was getting her degree in math. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until later that she stepped into the seismology role. So I'm sure what she was doing was, like, a lot of finance and, like, like admin stuff for different places. Okay. Yeah. And she did that for about, like, seven years. Just work experience, right? Mm-hmm. She was 30 at that point. Mm. Yeah. So she, um, I guess academia called her again. She was like, hey, remember the thing that you started and didn't finish? She went back to finish. She was 34 years old when she went back. Like, I'm not 
I'm not interested in pursuing an MFA right now, mm-hmm. but I feel like now that I've had quite a few years like away from my undergrad, mm-hmm. I know I would be an older student going back if I did, but I also feel like I'd be like a way better student. Yeah, 100%. Going back. Yeah, so I'm sure she was able to like go back after having all those years of actual work experience and like mm-hmm. just kick butt. And that's what she did because after her degree, she became an actuarial assistant again, but she did it in the science department at the University of Copenhagen. Okay. So she was dealing with all of the data, all of the math that actually dealt with like science, whatever experiments were being done. Um, I mean, it's a whole broad generalization, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but she tended to do a lot of things with seismography. And her experience led her to becoming an assistant to the head of the Royal Danish Geodetic Institute. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, what? Okay. <laughs> I want to be part of a royal institution. <laughs> We have nothing royal over here. Are you kidding me? Aside from a few people that are a royal pain in the ass, but... She she ended up doing field work that set up seismic stations throughout the city. So she just put little like machines around the city to catch seismic movements from uh, like distant earthquakes. So I know that Copenhagen is right on the water, mm-hmm. kind of tucked right underneath like Norway and Sweden. Is that a hot spot for earthquakes at all? No. Okay. Maybe not. So the reason, okay, so for seismic data, it's more picking up data from distant earthquakes. Okay. So not that necessarily sense. that they're happening in Copenhagen. It's just no. with the technology they had, they were able to have that sensitivity to pick up ones from like arguably like hundreds of miles away. Hold on. Let me see. Is Copenhagen expensive? That's the first thing that shows up on Google. Almost no natural disaster risks in Copenhagen. Sometimes earthquakes do occur along with mountainous and coastal cliff collapses. Okay. Well, give it a few years and those smug bastards will see a rise and sea levels so it's coming for you <laughs> two to ten earthquakes per year in the danish area yeah no so i mean again with research like that you're looking at a global thing you're not doing it's not just a like a local or regional okay that's yeah, so wild regional. which i mean it comes it comes into play wait for it oh, i'm sure <laughs> she is doing that but then she she ended up going back for another master's degree but this time in seismology and this was in 1928 okay and then she went from being the assistant head to being the actual head of the seismological department of the Royal Danish Geodetic Institute at this point. No. <laughs> so she's like, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here to stay. So a, like a year later, she made a huge discovery. And this is the thing that she's known for. So she was examining data from a very large earthquake in New Zealand. And Russian, yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right. I mean, people throw around the phrase like halfway across the world, but that's like literally the case in this instance. <laughs> and she, the some of the data she got were from Russian cities that collected it. Okay. It's it's global, baby. This is a yeah. This isn't just a. <laughs> no, no, I don't doubt that. But um, God, can you imagine though those communication lags? Like at what? We're at this point. We're in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. How could they, you know, well, early, early, like 1928, 1929. Okay. So, science time, you ready? Let's do this. <laughs> I'm actually going to send you some pictures of what I'm talking about. Okay. Visual Hold aids on. incoming. Visual aids are necessary. Oh, Jesus. Mm. <sighs> 
<laughs> All right. Um, so Milena has sent me some visual aids. <sighs> but Milena, that's made things worse. I have <laughs> I have more questions. Like all these lines. And I'm gonna, initials I'm gonna walk you degrees. I'm gonna walk you through the lines. <laughs> and God, I'm getting like algebra flashbacks. More like geometry, but yeah. <laughs> Somehow I never took that at all. Wait, you never took geometry? No. I thought you had to take it to graduate from our high school. No, I had a... Oh, there was a weird fluke because I switched (laughs) schools in in middle school. And my sixth grade curriculum in math was the equivalent of the seventh grade at my new school. So, like, I aced, like, the seventh grade math course. Oh. Yeah. Well, uh, my teachers were like, oh, you're doing so well. Obviously, you get to go on the advanced math level. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so by the time I got to high school, I was technically bumped up because oh, I had no. I'd skipped, I, I guess it was geometry. But then that's also how I fell into computer programming that technically counted as a science or a math course. But then when I begged the guidance counselor to let me, like, switch classes because I was going to fail it, they were like, no, that makes me look bad. What? Yeah. So I spent that entire class just looking at, like, colleges to apply for. (laughs) That didn't didn't require math. (laughs) Yeah. For art school, (laughs) duh. Um, And, of course, I failed that class. Only time I've done it. And then, but I, because I had been ahead, mm-hmm. thankfully I still had one more year to knock out that last si- or math course. Mm-hmm. So it really, it just, it didn't get me any more ahead. Oh all. goodness! But the whole I process, I never you hating that class where you were I was, like, oh, "I hate everything." I was like a week into it, and I was like, "Mistakes have been made. I'm in over <laughs> my head." I was like, "I gotta get out of here." Just oh, anything, anything else. That's hilarious. I mean, yeah. not for, not at the time, but it's, you know. No. So, yeah. So, I, I managed never to take geography. Ge- blah, 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 blah. Geometry? I just, look, these quest- these pictures are not helping me right now. That's all I got to say. <laughs> so, what, gonna... what have you got for us? <laughs> because it looks like we've got a heartbeat monitor hooked up to what? What different points about? of the, there's like a squiggly line with a smaller squiggly line. That is not an EKG by any means. There's no PQRS wave anywhere in there, my friend. Actually, there is a P wave and an S wave, but those are different. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. What do you have for me? How are you going to get me through this? <laughs> Welcome back. Jesus. <laughs> oh, I just want to say on a science note, whenever dark matter is brought up, I'm still like kind of salty. <laughs> I'm a little offended, and I don't know why. I think it's just, like, my innate ignorance of, like, realizing I can't fully comprehend that concept. And I know you did your best to describe it to me in one of our episodes. Yeah. And it still just doesn't click, and I'm still a little mad at myself because I just can't no. imagine the totality of it. It's, it's, And I'm it's just like, oh, dark scary. matter, that's bullshit. It. <laughs> It's a screwy concept. It's not for everyone. It was, I barely, I was like, "Ah, eh." (laughs) so you tried your best. You got me through that. I didn't get me through that. So what do, what do you got for this? What is I this? can get you through this one. Okay. All right. What, what, what are we doing? What are we talking? Okay. 
So, science time. We're going to start from the beginning. Jeez. <sighs> okay. So, around that time, the Earth was believed to be comprised of a an outer crust, which was like 1% of the Earth, made of rocks okay. and murals that we know as home. Mm-hmm. Next is the mantle, and this would be the thickest part of the Earth. It's composed of heavy metals, iron, nickel, magnesium, things like that. It's mostly solid. This is important. Oh, okay. Next is what they thought was just a core of angry molten lava. You know, you keep saying past tense with this, but but this falls in line with how I've come to understand our Earth. So, <laughs> whereabouts are you going to pull the rug from me? <laughs> I feel like there's a big butt coming. <laughs> Proceed. Oh my god. Uh, I mean, it's almost true. Oh yeah, that makes me feel so much better. Like, next you're gonna tell me there's like no dinosaurs at the center of the earth. Oh my god. Uh, Okay. So they thought three layers, (laughs) crust, mantle, lava core. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm following. All right. I am now going to have you think back to a super basic science class where you played with light. There are are so many assumptions made in that statement. Okay. Okay. I know you had one of those classes. It was like a basic middle school, maybe even elementary school. They gave you a bunch of mirrors and a light to shine at them. And then you had to also shine it through water. Um, Possibly. Um. Yeah, no, my adult brain is like, nope, not relevant information. <laughs> the, the gist of it was that if you shine it at different mediums, different things will happen. Is it Would that be like the refraction rate of the light and the particles? So the refraction index, which is not something I wanted to get into because that's another thing altogether, but it basically um, relies on the density of the medium that the light is being shined through. Okay, all right, yes, yes, I'm familiar with the concept. Okay, cool, cool, awesome. Yeah, so that's of that. Light is just a spectrum of many different kinds of waves, right? It's a very sure. small part of the wave spectrum. You have X-rays, you have UV rays, you have gamma rays. Like it reminds me like of anything. these like hand like jazz <laughs> like, um, like jazz hands you've got going on that really like spices it up like in the head. You remember there's more than just light rays, right? <laughs> Oh, man, you're the science teacher. I didn't know I needed as a child. <laughs> if only my science teacher would have done the jazz hands, so maybe I would have remembered the light experiment. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Regardless, earthquakes give off two kinds of waves, okay? Okay. All right, they gave off a P wave and an S wave. Okay. 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 So P waves can travel through solids, liquids, and gases. Okay. So a P wave is like an all of the above. Yes. Okay. The S wave can only travel through solids. S is for solid. Oh, okay. So does that like if it tries to go through a liquid, like the energy just becomes like just burst that like it gets it, lost? More like 
It, yeah, it gets absorbed, essentially. I, I mean, okay. obviously, okay, so law of physics, nothing can be created or destroyed, yada, yada. I don't know the actual physical, like, chemical properties of what happens to the actual waves once it hits a solid, but it does not go through it. Okay, so the, the P waves are able to go through anything. Anything. But the S waves only channel through solid substances. So seismic machines were invented in 1880. So they hadn't been around very long by the time she got to them, right? But it allowed scientists to create a map of the interior of the Earth um, using the waves from earthquakes. So the map that I sent you is looking at the Earth as if it were cut through the middle and the flat half is being faced towards the observer, right? Yes. So the point of the earthquake is placed neatly at the top, the center of the circle, the top, yep. the tippy top of the circle, and waves are being emanated from that point. So those waves, they'll branch outward, right? So they're like the triangular illumination of the flashlight, but the outer edges of the, the light are more curved than actually straight, right? Yeah, it's almost like they, they bow out, like they're fanning out until right. they hit that center core substance and that's when things go funny. Yeah, exactly. So of the two waves, the S waves, the solid only one, they were only detected between the point of the earthquake to the distance of 104 degrees from that point. You see on the on the sides there? Yes. It hits yeah. 100, yeah. Um, so that's like the angle from the point where it started. Think of like a protractor. Yeah, like the image, it's kind of like for, what is it, your S waves. It's like if the earth was a donut, right? And you had a knife to cut the donut. <laughs> But you have to cut a wedge, but you can't go through the middle. So, like, if you're at a certain point in the donut, you can only wedge so far to the side to graze the, the middle of the donut. And so I that's what you. this chart looks like. Is trying to cut a donut without cutting the center of the donut. Yeah. So, like, you're solid. <laughs> Wait, no, it's your S waves. Those are my S waves. The solid Okay, only. yes. Yeah, so yeah. the solid ones obviously can't go through the middle of the donut. So those ones get disrupted with the the molten middle juicy bit of the Earth's core. Whereas your P waves are like, whatever, bye. I can jump through the donut hole, even though things get a little fuzzy and can come out on the other side of the donut, even though it's not quite where they were meant to be. It's like they were a little drunk almost. <laughs> and you're like, why am I at a donut place at like three in the morning? I thought we agreed on insomnia cookies. <laughs> wait a minute. Aren't we around the corner from Church's Fried Chicken? <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. You're a vegetarian. And you're like, well, I'm not a very good one. <laughs> Back to the donuts. So that's my story for the graphic that you've sent me is donuts. Especially when you're not a very good vegetarian and you're gluten-free. Okay, I will say I have been a very good vegetarian who is partial to fish. I believe that's called a pescatarian? Yes, but then I'm also... <laughs> Look, you know what? My dietary preferences don't matter and I don't need this type of personal judgment... <laughs> There's no judgment here. I'm just saying that why are you in a donut place if you're gluten-free? <laughs> oh, I'm definitely not in a donut place being gluten-free. There's no hope in hell for a gluten-free donut. And if anyone tells you, they're lying. <laughs> but as some, yeah, that's another thing that happened while we were gone. I figured out that all my kind of gut issues I've been having for quite a while, um, it's not actually IBS. It's a gluten intolerance. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I was really hoping I'd be lactose intolerant because like I love you, Milana, but like I could totally live without cheese, but like cheese. Unfortunately, that's not what the gods had in store for me. Nope. So gluten yeah. baby. Nope. Oh my god. It sucks. But um yeah, so back to your donut earth. <laughs> back to the donut earth. So, I don't even know. Oh goodness. The S waves, they'll reach out without touching the middle part, and they can only go so far. And if they hit the middle part, they stop abruptly. Yes. The P waves, they can go one of two places. They could either follow the same way that the S waves went to, or they can go through the middle, but being refracted differently than the original like path. Because they're hitting a different medium. So they're yes. being refracted differently. But they can still make it through. However, if you look at the at the diagram, and I guess we're gonna put that in the show notes, there's a there's a chunk on both sides of the donut, if you will, or the earth, that the waves aren't supposed to touch. It's called oh, the it's- shadow zone. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why most people thought that there were only two like mediums for these waves to go through. Only two ways for these waves to go, essentially. Okay, I got it. Okay, so the shadow zone, when you're cutting the pieces of the donut, that's the bit you totally promise you'll save for your friend and you won't eat it, pinky promise. <laughs> So you're just, you're not even going to look at it. You're not going to acknowledge it. You're just going to allocate that wedge that's like, yeah, technically it's only like a quarter, but like still, (laughs) it's a donut. They should be happy for that. (laughs) Those are between uh, 104 degrees and 140 degrees from the point of earthquake, from the impact zone. Yes. All right. And that's on both sides in both directions. Yeah. So Uh, between the two pieces, they're technically almost getting half a donut. Almost. Almost. (laughs) so they were like okay looking at this data it looks like we're dealing with two different mediums of these waves to work their way through they for years have concluded that they were only dealing with a crust a solid mantle and a semi-liquid core they also assumed because these machines were relatively new that errors are bound to happen static noise essentially would arise Mm -hmm. in this data So they didn't really bat an eye when data was being shown that some waves actually did travel through the shadow zone. Ah, I feel like that's a cue to image number two. Uh Uh-huh. It was a combination of there being not enough instances of this kind of static noise, and then the data was written off as experimental error. They assumed that something mechanical happened to cause this, and it was not considered accepted data. Inga, however, was a little less inclined to write them off. While looking at the information from a very large earthquake in New Zealand, she noticed that some of the P waves were deflecting into the shadow zone and were bent several times. Not as smooth as our standard P waves would like normally be. Cutting more into the to the part of the donut you're not supposed to eat. Yeah, no, these totally look like really impulsive. Yeah. Like I mean going back <laughs> to like our drunken donut analogy, it looks like someone was drunken trying to cut this donut. <laughs> and it's just kind of butchering it a little bit. <laughs> And you're like, everything's gotten to hell. Nothing is sacred. (laughs) Oh, my God. So she's obviously a woman who loved her work. She never married, never had kids. She dedicated her life to her passion. Her time studying this particular phenomena was described by her nephew. And he stated, remember her sitting in a garden outside and surrounding herself with cardboard cards inside of oatmeal boxes with seismic data written on them. So I can just like imagine her cross-legged with a bunch of like cardboard cards with the Quaker guy peering out from the back of her cards. 
And then her looking up at her nephew and going, does this say 124 degrees? I don't know if that's the actual number she got. But like that's that was the moment where everybody was like, oh, she's doing something. We're just going to leave her alone. (laughs) (laughs) Noah, you bring out the arts and crafts at science time and everyone's like, what are you doing? (laughs) Some of us need visual aids. (laughs) So she spent the better part of seven years working on her theory and published a paper simply named P prime. But it was written with like P apostrophe. The apostrophe is called prime in the science world, science math world. Okay. So she mapped out and described a specific P wave, the one that you were looking at from the earthquake, and then submitted a new model of the Earth. And she postured that the bending of that wave was proof of a solid core beyond the molten lava one. So instead of three rings, there are four. So here we are. (laughs) Okay, I'll be honest. When she was like, guys, guys, I think it's actually this way. What did that do? How did that change things? (laughs) A lot, actually. Okay. Because uh, I am ignorant and I don't know. And it's just a matter of, like, what they used to describe as, like, those little, like, static noise. You're like, oh, no, that's actually more information now. <laughs> I mean, it's always good to know what things are, like, made of and, like, what, like, because then you have to ask yourself, how did a solid core get in the middle of molten lava? Like, how is this created? How, how did we, like, how are we here? Exactly. So that's what caused a lot of people to go, well, how did this happen? So it went more into how the Earth was created, the makeup of it, and the science behind it, essentially. Okay. So, like, any good scientist, and arguably artist, when you have a new mm-hmm. discovery, really you're just making more questions for everyone else. Exactly. That's the point of science. And I mean, yeah, the point <laughs> of like being creative is that you're exploring and trying something new. And ideally, if you've hit on something good, you've opened up new avenues for people, which opens up way more questions and you know, exactly. What existed before. Yeah. Okay. Basically. All right. And oddly enough, there were some people who were like, okay, I'm going to take this and hold it and share it with the rest of like my students and my faculty and go from there. So there were a few people who were like, yeah, this makes sense. I get you. And they didn't really go against it. But it wasn't like a worldwide, absolutely indiscriminable doubt until 1971. When computers came in and, like, pinged out more waves, got more data, and that's when they were like, yeah, this is real. So what? She was kind of, like, 30 years before that then? So her – well, I mean, her publication was done in 1936. Okay. And she started in 1929. Yeah. Okay. Please tell me she lived long enough to see that additional validation through computers. Just wait for it. Okay. Okay? That's a good sign. So (laughs) – So yeah, as I said, some geophysicists adopted her theory, and then she went about her life after her paper, and she became the chair of the Danish Geophysical Society in 1940, and moved her focus to the upper mantle, so the the solid part. No, I get it. I was going to say a dad joke, but then I stopped myself. Oh, okay. (laughs) Thank you for that. In 1953, she eventually retired from her position at the Geoetic Institute. So about 25 years spent working for that particular institute. Mm -hmm. And then she moved to the U.S. for a bit, and she was 65 years old at this point. She collaborated with a few other geophysicists. Specifically, she focused on the crust and upper mantle of the Earth. And during this time, she found a second discontinuity. Oh, I bet everyone loved that. Okay. (laughs) Uh, This one's a little more like, what? (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah, because this first one wasn't. Okay. 
God, all right. Um, we did donuts. Is it going to be pie time next? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. What other I baked honestly, goods I can't consume can we bring into this? This is much farther than my scope. I'm going to white flag this up. I'll explain. Just wait for it. So, <sighs> I can't. Your face is great. <laughs> like, I'm listening. I'm here. I love you. I trust you. <laughs> The discontinuity lies between 190 and 250 kilometers into the Earth's surface. And for Americans, that's 118 and 155 miles below the Earth's crust. Sure. Either way, I can't visualize how big that is, but okay. The diameter of the Earth in miles is 7,917.5 miles. Kilometers is 12,742 kilometers. I mean, either way, that's a lot of trips back and forth between, like, D.C. and L.A. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty big. But only, was it, 190 to 250 kilometers into their surface. So it's closer to the surface. It's in the upper mantle. Uh, But this is where it is. And you're like... Okay, well, what is it? What happened? So it was actually named after her. It's called the Lehman discontinuity. I want to see your face for this. So in this ring of Earth, it's mostly under continents and not oceans. Velocity of the PNS waves that I told you about. Yeah. They somehow just increase. That shit gets faster. It gets faster. Like they hit hyperspeed through the donut hole. Exactly. Well, not through the donut hole because the donut hole is much farther. But through part of the donut, it just decides, I want to move faster and it They goes. get that sugar rush. It just... I don't understand. <laughs> I, um, whatever. I just play with clay that comes from the crust. So that's I as looked, far as my interest goes. Uh, <laughs> I know. I looked into the possible theories and I can... I, I think something about how the atmosphere changes, I guess the pressure. I don't I don't know. I don't care. I don't I don't want to know. All I know is that she found two of them in a lifetime. Just living her best life. I mean, okay, so that's really amazing, but it's also kind of wild to imagine that like if she had been born the same time in the United States, quite possibly none of that would have happened. No, nope. because she just wouldn't have had the educational resources to like nope. oh, I don't know, actually reach her full potential. <laughs> they would just be like, mm, maybe you should teach what the Earth is and not, you know, research it. Yeah. So a notable geophysicist named Francis Birch said about the, the last discovery that the Lehman discontinuity was discovered through exacting scrutiny of seismic records by a master of a black art for which no amount of computerization is likely to be a complete substitute. I like how he acknowledges that it's like a black art because some of the science stuff you tell me. <laughs> like, I know art can be a little woo-woo sometimes, but I'm like, that's some black magic shit that you're describing. <laughs> it's science. It's science. Sure. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, she was very much appreciated in her lifetime. She was the recipient of countless of awards. Most notable was the highest honor you can get from the Seismological Society of America. It's called the William Bowie Medal. And it was given to her the year that they had, like, backed up her theory from 1937 about the inner core Uh being solid. Okay. She was very much alive. And she was the first woman to ever receive it. Ooh. 
Yeah. She was awarded honorary doctorates from her university as well as Columbia University. An asteroid was named after her in 2015. She had a beetle species named after her, but it was not. Eh, the beetle is kind of creepy. I don't know what was going on there. I don't want to know what's going like, on there. That can be a really <laughs> sweet gesture by what is it, um, <laughs> etymologist. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's great. It's terrifying. It eats flesh. Like it's a flesh-eating beetle. Yeah, see, it's like, well, I appreciate the thought. Also, you're trying to tell me something in a very backhanded way. (laughs) Either way, she kicked butt. She knew she kicked butt. She saw people recognizing her kicking said butt. And then she died in 1993 at the ripe old age of 104. What? Uh, Yeah. So, yeah, your scientist easily outlived my artist for today, but (gasps) only by a little bit. Okay. All right. Cool, cool. Yeah. My artist lives, she lived to be 88, and it just kind of really cemented that I feel like for people who, like, have found their thing, Mm -hmm. you're just going to live forever doing it. All right. Well, great. Well, I'm so excited that today we both have people who were, like, recognized, especially during their lifetime, and, like, had that validation and feedback and appreciation Mm -hmm. and um, lived to be a ripe old age. What what was your scientist's name again? Inga Lehman. Inga Lehman. Mm-hmm. Probably not going to remember that, but now I know of a Danish size size seismologist. That thing, yeah. Or you could just say geophysicist. Yeah, geophysicist somehow just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> I don't know, that's just way easier for me. I mean, okay, so the, the differences between the two is that a seismologist studies the internal structure of the Earth. Geophysicists, however, apply the principles and concepts of physics, mathematics, and geology, as well as engineering, to the study of said physical characteristics of the Earth. So I think she was honestly more of a geophysicist because okay. what what black magic is this? So much math. Cool. I really hope we can fast forward like an indeterminate <laughs> amount of time and I'll be at a cocktail party and I can be like, well, actually for a geophysicist, <laughs> I'm like for a hot second, know what I'm talking about while also <laughs> doing everything in my power not to say a seis- seismologist because I don't want to mispronounce it and tell me an idiot. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> now I know. Now I know. All right. Well. By the end of the day, you're going to know about a Ukrainian artist. Ooh. Do you know any? No. (laughs) Well, as of a few days ago, I didn't either. So as a lovely start to the first episode of our newest season... I'm covering an artist that, despite living through some terrible and awful things herself, still made vibrant and hopeful art. That's so exciting. It is. It is. Because I was looking at some other people and I was like, that's a sad story. I can't do this. But today we're covering a people's artist of Ukraine, folk artist painter Maria. Oh, fuck. Okay. Mario? Mario. <coughs> Mar- Mario? It's a me. <laughs> it's a Mario. to be Maria Primachenko. Okay, hold on. Let me Google her name because what? I have questions. Maria, hold on. Ukrainian folk artist Maria, oh, Primachenko? Primachenko. Primachenko, okay. Yes. Well, I'm only going to say oh. her last name like three times this entire bit, so I got one third done. Oh my god, her Wait, art. No. Spoilers! Spoilers! Okay, sorry. I'm not going to, all right, I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying anything. Just chill out. There's th- you got to wait until I get a paragraph or two down. Then I say, check out Google. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Ah, Milena, she's not observing my cues that she can't see on my notes. Um, <laughs> 
All right. Well, yeah. So she is a people artist, mm-hmm. people's artist of Ukraine. And even though she passed away over 20 years ago, her work is being used as a symbol of resistance against the current occupying Russian forces in telling them politely to fuck off. <gasps> yes. Yes. Yeah. So given that, uh, we've got a good bit of geopolitics today, a super brief 20th century history of Ukraine, okay. and Picasso fangirling for Maria. What? Yeah, it's okay. So one thing that's really fun about doing this podcast with you is every now and again for like research, you like stumble across something and you're like, how did I get here? How is this? I was, and that's one of them. Wait, what? Picasso? What? Okay. (laughs) That was me with Niels Bohr. I was like, what is this? Why? The fun of doing this. All right, but before we can get to any of that, we are going back in time. Wait, don't we have like a back in time machine sound? We don't. I think. Oh, we did. We have a. We had a time machine song, didn't we? Who will solve the mysteries of time and space in between? It's the my favorite feminist time machine. And we are going to a small village in 1909, just north of Kiev, uh, where Maria was born into a very poor peasant family. Now, details on her are kind of slim in English. So I'm going to be kind of in like the broad stroke of things today. But I just want to say that like there's, I suspect, so much more information out there on her. I just don't think it's made it to the English part of the internet. Mm-hmm. So there's that barrier with like translation and then also things being digital digitized too. Right. So yeah. So that's my little disclaimer. Now, unfortunately for Maria, being born in the early 1900s, it, it meant that she'd be coming of age during some pretty big world events. Like us millennials, like we saw some shit even before we hit our 30s. But like mm-hmm. Maria saw some like way darker shit. World War II? Oh, there's more. There's more. Mm. Oh, yeah. no. Okay. So like for one, as a child, she developed polio. Yay! Vaccinate your kids, boys and girls. Yeah. Thank goodness we're not dealing with any health threats that could be, you know, solved with vaccinations. <laughs> My eyes have rolled into the back of my head. I'm frothing at the mouth now. Um, so, I mean, obviously at the time they still didn't have a vaccine for it. My grandpa got it. Like he always had a limp all his mm. life because his legs were different heights from it. Mm. And Maria did have long-term health impacts from it. But I mean, growing yeah. up, she wasn't really terribly mobile when she contracted it. So by today's standard, she didn't really receive a formal education because of it. But her mother did teach her skills like embroidery and pizanka, which is a traditional egg dyeing technique. Okay. Yeah. So these are skills that like later on directly influenced Maria's work. Now, growing up, Ukraine is kind of a hot mess. It's not like its fault. It's not Ukraine's fault. It's definitely not. (laughs) <laughs> but in, like, the 1800s, it had mm-hmm. been pushed around between the Austrian and the Russian empires. Yeah. And then, as World War One was coming to a close, in January of 1918, Ukraine is like, right, we're an independent country declaring itself the Ukrainian People's Republic. Mm-hmm. All right. And since we've all seen the movie Anastasia, Disney has, like, obviously taught us about the 1917 overthrow of the Russian monarchy. Obviously. Yeah, that's right. Some of us have even seen it. In theater. <laughs> in actual life theater as well. Yes. As. <laughs> 
I mean, sure, we couldn't see, like, at least one third of the stage because, like, the pillar in front of us. But, like, fine. I only get you the best tickets. Truthfully, I was very fine hanging over that side. I didn't care if I fell down. I was very, very happy. I mean, if we stood, it was fine. It was fine. It We're was good. It was great. <laughs> so with that as our education on the <laughs> Russian overthrow by the Bolsheviks. Because, um, you know, there are school systems weren't going to do it. <laughs> Wait, Ukraine was like deuces. And Lenin and his new communist party was like the FUR, which brought on three years of fighting with Ukraine losing. Oh, no. And this is right after World War One. Oh, my God. And then at the same time this war is going on between Ukraine and Russia, oh, cue the Spanish flu. Yeah. Yeah. So when people dying between this conflict, I mean, we've got what upwards of 15 million people. Yeah, 1918. Yeah. Oh, my God. Why do I know the freaking outbreaks of things? (laughs) I mean, this is all when Maria is, like, 10 years old. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. All we had to deal with was, like, 9-11 and the Iraqi war. You know, the little things. I mean, no big deal. So then she had to go through another war. Oh. (laughs) But wait, there's more. Oh, my God. Yeah, so Maria's like 13 years old. Ukraine officially gets absorbed into the USSR. That's 1922. And I mean, if things weren't going downhill before, they definitely are now. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but like with this current war, like I learned that Ukraine is like the breadbasket of Europe. Explique. Yeah, so Ukraine, that whole region of Europe, it's like the largest concentration of like most fertile grain producing land on the continent. That's why. Is that why they're so intent on trying to take over Ukraine? That's a big aspect. Yeah. And what I'm about to touch on is totally still relevant today. Oh, my God. But yeah, so Ukraine is like the largest producer of grain out of Europe. Damn. I mean, that was true like 100 years ago. It's true now. And the Soviet Union wanted to exploit that, and they did. And they're, I mean, technically, they're currently trying to do that now with certain blockades they put in place to, like, screw with the whole financial structure. But yeah, so the Soviet Union's like, we can totally exploit that. And, like, basically during the 1920s, as Marie is a teenager, and, like, her own family are working in the fields, Ukraine could kind of do its own thing as long as it gave the Soviets all that grain production and they got all the profit. Obviously. Yeah, like they were still encouraged to speak Ukrainian and there were certain things about the culture that were still respected. Mm-hmm. But the head honchos, like in, you know, now Russia, they wanted the financial control of everything for it. Right. That was under Lenin. So Stalin. Oh, Stalin. Yeah. So he felt that Ukraine was too independent and purposely manufactured a famine, which is today Ah. largely accepted as genocide, specifically against the Ukrainian people in the early 1930s. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like, there was famine in Eastern Europe because of some of the decisions that the head honchos in the USSR made, but specifically they made purposely really shitty ones for Ukraine to make it absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible, as in, like, it's estimated at least, like, close to 4 million people died. They generated a famine. 
Yeah. And the, the messed up thing is that like at the height of it, spanned over two years from 1932 to 1933, in June of 1933, about 28,000 people were dying a day. What the fuck? Yet the Soviet Union had enough grain in reserves to feed at least 10 million people. So the entire time this famine is going on, they had the reserves to feed people, but they chose not to because politically it wasn't to their benefit. They're Trying to break the spirit of this country in any way possible, I mean, that leaves millions dead in the process. It's a complete destabilization method. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, it's super fucked up. And it's known as the Great Famine or also Holodomor. So a British historian described it as the terror famine of 1932 to 33. It was a dual purpose, a byproduct of collectivization designed to suppress Ukrainian nationalism and the most important concentration of properous peasants at one throw. People are fucking monsters. Yeah. So Stalin wanted to make it as devastating as possible to wipe out as many people and to politically undermine and to financially undermine and it's just I mean and what's so messed up is that they weren't even collectively able to process the trauma as a nation because the Soviets in charge completely denied it even happened and even Putin today totally denies that even happened He's, of course he does He's in his own little world. It wasn't until later in the 1980s that there was even public talk of what had happened. And so there's this whole collective history loss because of the amount of people that just died. It's incredibly messed up, super messed up. And Maria's family was caught in that. How many family members did she lose? So there's no documentation on just like how it personally affected her family. Like during this genocide, approximately like one in three villages were blacklisted Mm. and that meant that they were surrounded and no one could come in and no one could come out. Some people just starved to death. Super messed up. Well, it seems like Maria's village wasn't one of them. You know she knew people who died. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And she's in her early 20s at this point. Like for us, what? We were just on the... On the tail end of the Great Recession and worrying about finals for college. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, when I say she's been through it, like... What the hell was I doing at 21? God, I was, I don't know, trying to get through my senior year university. I don't know. Suddenly none of that seems as bad (laughs) compared to this. (laughs) You're like, I had food. I'm good. (laughs) Cheap ramen counts. (laughs) So what do you think of... If you had to, like, describe Ukrainian art or, like, Ukrainian, like, vis- like visuals or styles. I know nothing about Ukrainian art at all. Okay. I have no... No preconception? No, that's fine. That's fine. I, like... <laughs> I didn't really know anything about, like, art specifically, but, like, I knew, like, embroidery came to mind. Oh, I guess, yeah. Yeah, like, lots of, like, red and maybe a little bit of blue with, like, geometric patterns. Like, that's what I first thought of. Okay. One really prominent visual style that has been recognized by UNESCO as, like, a intangible cultural heritage for Mm -hmm. Ukraine is this painting style called... Kivka, and it started as like decorating your house like inside and out and then you can find that style on like ceramic wares and embroidery and it's characterized by these really like bold brush strokes really distinctive line work color is layered as opposed to like blended okay and then they're like these asymmetrical symmetrical designs with like, you know, local flora and fauna, and then they center on the symbolic animals like roosters or um, let's say like birds. Asymmetrical, symmetrical? So as in you might have the profile of an animal in the center. 
So that's the asymmetrical bit. But surrounding it in a somewhat symmetrical style, it might be like leaves or flowers, like emanating around it. Odd. It's visually, it's very distinct. And in 2013, like I said, UNESCO recognized it as like a type of artwork of cultural significance, Mm -hmm. like unique to Ukraine. And that style, you know, kind of blends a little bit just because the history of that region. So you might find some works as could be characterized in that style in like parts of Poland and then of course parts of Russia too. With that kind of culturally as like a visual history, uh, Maria was pulling from that same spirit of like naturalism in her drive as an artist. Okay. So she said, quote, as a young girl, I was tending to a gaggle of geese when I got to them to a sandy beach on the bank of the river after crossing a field dotted with wildflowers, I began to draw real and imaginary flowers with a stick in the sand. Later, I decided to paint the walls of my house using natural pigments. After that, I've never stopped drawing or painting. Oh. Yeah. So it's curious that she mentions like painting the walls of her house because at Mm -hmm. first I was like, all right, that's a little weird, but you know, work with what you got. Yeah. But there's actually like a centuries old tradition in Ukraine of doing these like floral decorative paintings of like the outside of your house around the windows and then the inside around like the fireplace. That's cool. Yeah. And I saw that a little bit later on after looking into her and I was like, oh, now this makes sense. Okay. That's where this is kind of coming from. Yeah. So like that visual language, you know, it, it did carry over into other decorative arts like embroidery and egg painting that Marie was taught as a child. Mm-hmm. And like I said, no surprise, like she used that inspiration like within her own work. She tailored the use of color and shape and combined it with these really fanciful designs that are just, they're so much fun. And it's such a contrast when like learning about her and all this like terrible trauma that she went through. And then you look at her pieces and you're like, this should be in a children's book. It's so great. I mean, you have to disassociate somehow, right? I mean, it's one way of coping. And so her stuff, it's so it's so vibrant. So yeah. this is the point where I want you to Google the images, Milena. Sorry, I'm not prepared like you. I just don't have images to send over our Facebook messenger. I, okay, so there are a few things here. <laughs> yes. Okay, now that I've like, I haven't even really like fully described Maria's work yet. How would you describe it? This is a fun game to play. Give me your donut interpretation. (laughs) Okay, so there's this one where it's like two possibly chicken heads. Oh, that one. Kind of like red and and gold and orange. Yeah. They are, in fact, chickens. That is a chicken. That... A, ch- a chicken? It's a two-headed chicken. Okay. And then I am uh, I'm scrolling to this uh, dog-like creature who looks like it might be pregnant or nursing, who's throwing up some snakes, two of them. Oh, okay. That actually comes in later. So keep scrolling. Don't look at that one anymore. Okay. Keep scrolling. <laughs> We got a pig also nursing, eating from a trough. It's blue. The pig is blue. It's got spots on it. like So many spots. spots. Yeah. So Maria did not adhere to traditional color schemes like whatsoever. She pulled from like really vibrant colors and especially later on after like post-World War II when she could get more vibrant commercial pigments. Is this lion wearing socks? You know what? You can't complain that this woman doesn't have imagination. Ah. (laughs) And I, I love that about her work uh, it's <laughs> it's so imaginative and it's so vibrant and it's just it's so much fun to look at um oh this one has a crown on its head and a mustache and is holding the head of a smaller crowned same animal maybe he beheaded his son 
I don't know. There's one where, like, there's a lizard riding another larger animal and, like, leading a battalion. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, folk art and folk traditions came into it. Storytelling, you know, that type of narrative is evident in, like, what you're describing for, like, all these little scenes, these fragments. And Maria also took inspiration from her dreams, too. And then just pulling from what's around her and, like, making up her own imaginary creatures and her own flowers and just, like, went for it. Like, she did not hold back. I love it. Now, during her 20s, so Maria, she's, like, making art. She's doing embroidery. She's teaching it a bit. And this is all before she, like, transitions into painting. Now, unfortunately, her fiber work and her supposed ceramic work, I couldn't find any examples online. So maybe they just haven't made it on American Google yet. Maybe they just didn't stand up to the test of time. I'm not sure. Either way, I mean, this is this painting. These painting pieces are enough. Like, why does this bull have a mustache? (laughs) That one's a fun one. I mean, like, you're scrolling through. Like, there's so much online of her paintings because she did hundreds of them in her lifetime. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. sleeping. And for her work, she was working with watercolors and then later gouache, which is, like, a type of watercolors, but... Instead of being translucent, it's, like, opaque. Mm-hmm. She always worked on paper. Sizing at first, like, roughly 11 by 14 inches in the 1930s. And then later on, it did scale up a bit larger. One early work that I like um, is a 1936 piece she did when she was 27. And it's titled Beast, where... Like, among these small flowers at its feet walks the side profile of, like, a four-legged animal that just seems to be covered in eyes. And it's got these, like, squat square teeth that you know could just, like, crush your head. And then (laughs) there's, like, this spiky appendage that comes out of its forehead. (laughs) And you're like, what is that? It's, it's, yeah, what is that? (laughs) I don't and it, it's so much fun because it kind of blends. You're like, is that supposed to be just like a decorative motif or is that actually part of the animal? It really blurs it because Maria took that like kind of traditional form of painting and then flips it with these really strange invented monsters just roaming among the flowers and ferns. I love them all. Okay, good. Because people really responded to that whimsical strangeness and her work. So it goes that Maria was discovered while she was like displaying her embroideries on a street market and this artist came up to her and was like hey i think you'd really like it here they were doing work at the central experimental workshop at the kiev museum of ukrainian art oh nice yeah and maria was like yeah cool all right so for a bet she was working alongside other artists making work that would eventually be shown at the first republic folk art exhibition in kiev in 1936 nice she was 27. But yeah, Maria's doing a group exhibition, and this kickstarted her international exhibition record. Does she have a best friend making her smile for pictures, too? I don't know, because there's not that many pictures for that time period, if any. I actually didn't see any for the 1930s. There's a few of her works that have been, like, digitized. Mm-hmm. But it's it's it was slim pickings. Now, like I said, so this did kickstart Maria's international exhibition record. And with the success of her work in that exhibition, it resulted in her work being shown in Warsaw and Sofia and Montreal and Prague mm-hmm. and even the 1937 World Fair in Paris. God damn those World Fairs. Yeah, yeah. I know. We should bring them back. <laughs> and like... Not only did she win, like, a golden medal for her work there, but that's where Casa remarked upon seeing her art, quote, I bow down before the artistic miracle of this brilliant Ukrainian. <laughs> that 
was like, all right, cool, bro. She might, he might as well just been like, marry me. I mean, I think he was one of those guys that had quite a few bits on the side. Yeah. So probably fair. not. But I mean, still. <laughs> so yeah, so this time, you know, there's momentum going for her art. Maria at this point has also had a series of surgeries that allowed her to like regain fully, well, mostly full use of her legs mm-hmm. just because of the impairment that she had from the polio. So she from was able polio. to like walk. Yeah. yeah. But again, she, it's, she, there was still lingering damage her entire life. Oh. So things are going great. No, she like meets a guy. They have a son. Oh. He World War II. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing can go right for her. <sighs> yeah. So Maria's creative output understandably comes to a halt and suddenly she's a young widow with a small child and yet another bout of wartime turmoil. No. Yeah. Oh, also, um, so her husband died while he was fighting, you know, against the Nazis. And then she apparently had a brother, don't know his name, but he was killed by the Nazis. Oh, my story there. I don't know it, unfortunately. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, uh, like the man-made horrors that she went through as a child, you know, Ukraine was not spared. No. Especially not when Hitler's army invaded the Soviet Union and uh, Kiev was like the first major city. That they um, took over. Yeah. And where they they slaughtered um, over 33,000 Jews. Maria went through so much that at this point in her life, if she was just like, eh, I'm going to pass on making art. Like, I would not blame her. No. Yeah. Like, she just tapped out and was like, eh, I'm good. I guess she didn't. No, no. Thankfully, she kept going. I mean, it took a little bit, but she she did pick up later on. I think after her son maybe was a little bit older. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, after World War II was over and then also there was the threat of the Cold War kind of passed a bit. Like, on top of all this, like, geopolitical suffering that she endured... Mm-hmm. There was also the added risk that Stalin would kill you for just being an artist, too. Wait, I'm sorry. Why? What? Yep. Okay, so Stalin is, like, force-feeding Eastern Europe, like, this idealized Soviet nationality. And anyone subverting that effort was a risk of being shunned, exiled to a work camp, or put in front of a firing squad. And that went for a lot of intellectuals, and that went for a lot of artists, Oh, no. Anyone who was seen as potentially perverting the Soviet Union's, like, efforts. And conveniently, like, the exact definition of ideal Soviet art was always shifting. So that made it very politically tricky. But given that Maria was making, like, folk art, like, as a peasant woman. Yeah. It's messed up. But, like, that insulated her from the immediate, like, risk of political death because of her perceived lower status. (laughs) They were like, oh, she's not important enough. She's not going to make a difference. And thinking about it, like some of there were some other artists that like cited her as an inspiration for their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, part Russian artists, you know, cited some of her works as like an inspiration. And I quickly looked at him and easily in the description, oh, he's an early pioneer of like European monitors and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wait, how come we're not talking about Marie in that same language? Yeah. And I feel like it's because her work was just seen as an extension of the decorative arts. As opposed to, like, actually challenging, like, art at the time and helping to, like, launch it forward into a new era of, like, modern abstraction and color and reform. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I think that association is was also evident at the time that she wasn't considered, like, a political risk. Right. Okay. Because she wasn't moving in traditional intellectual circles. And even though she had her art on, like, an international level, 
Mm-hmm. It still had that association with the decorative arts. And again, oh. for her to be a woman and to be what was perceived as the uneducated woman. Let her have her art. Yeah, because, well, obviously she's no threat. Yeah. Meanwhile, the men who were taking inspiration from her work are like, you know, leading pioneers in early modernism. Oh, of course. You're like, bitch, she's doing that too. <laughs> like, she deserves more credit. Um, of course. That's always how it works, right? I know. Discrimination, <laughs> sexism. <laughs> that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah. But, okay, so even though, like, from that point of view, she had a perceived lower status, within her own country, Maria was and is to this very day very well regarded. Good. So like I said, I think after her, her her son grew up a bit, she picked up painting again in the 1960s. At this point, she's in her early 50s. And her work becomes way more vibrant in the color scheme, again, because of those commercial pigments that were now available. And she's still creating these, like, strange beasts, but she's also encouraging Ukrainian independence with works that are, with the titles that are, like, are directly addressing the Ukrainian army or, like, a, an exiled pro-independence poet. Right. That also extends to work concerned over nuclear threats, too. So, in 1978, Maria paints a fuchsia creature with two snakes coming out of its mouth. <gasps> yeah. Oh. With these, like, really sharp fang teeth. And that's yeah. titled Atomic Warfare, Damn It. <laughs> I know, because that, that pink color is just, it's so eye-catching. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was yeah. like, what am I looking at? <laughs> It's so captivating. I mean, just seeing it with no context, you're like, what is going on? And then you get these little tidbits that just help further the understanding that you're like, oh, this makes it so much richer. Yeah. Now, it's super chilling knowing that, like, fast forward eight years, just 31 miles away from Maria's village, the worst nuclear accident in history occurred one late April night at Chernobyl. Mm, Yeah. Yep. Oh, no. Yeah. So, like, again, when I said this woman had seen some shit, like, I am not lying. Uh, Does she die of cancer? No. uh, I don't know. She was 88. I think at that point you could just say old age and everyone's like, yeah, that checks out. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she did do a series kind of based off of that incident. And actually, one of the works was auctioned off in May of 2022, something she created in 1990, the age of 81. It's like this three-headed snake growing out of a flower pot, and it's all in reference to like what now grows around the radioactive disaster site. Oh, my God. And that was auctioned off for half a million dollars to raise money for the Ukrainian army. Whoa. Yeah. Damn straight. Look at her. Like Maria passed away in 97 at the age of 88, but yeah, like she lived to see Ukraine independence in 1991 in the wake of the Soviet Union's fall. But like, unfortunately, like, I don't think she'd be surprised to know that her art is now helping to fund another war effort against Russia. Yeah, it's like, oh, this is this is on par, this is every day. <laughs> yeah, oh, another oh. influenza. Oh, imagine that. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> Well, have there been any genocides recently? Oh, 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 God. Okay. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, we just keep repeating the same terrible things over and over over and and over again. Yep. So Maria's art has not been spared from the destruction Russia has inflicted on Ukraine. Of course not. In, like... 
the early days of the war, like uh, just a few days in, there was a local museum just north of Kiev that suffered targeted burning. It contained about two dozen works by Maria. And thankfully, locals were able to save her work. Um, I think I know there was a security guard and his wife and a few other people that like literally ran into like this burning building to save what they could. Um, They didn't get everything. And, like, unfortunately, that, like, fuchsia anti-nuclear monster that caught your eye, that one was destroyed. No! But, I mean, even with the original gone, like, there's been a foundation set up and is now run by, like, her granddaughter. That obviously, that is, it exists online. We still have the visuals of it. So, it's not totally gone, which is something. And I don't know how things currently stand because things are still changing a lot you know, active war. But the National Museum of Ukraine for their decorative arts, they do have at least 650 works by Maria. That's amazing. That's good. It is amazing. I don't know if there's been any recent damage to it just because it's war and Russia is targeting everything, you know, and specifically cultural points to destroy that history. I mean, that's like their MO. I mean, again, we've got Putin, you know, trying to start this like monolithic Russian identity, which is exactly what Stalin was doing in Ukraine. Yeah. Almost 100 years ago. Yeah. And as Yana Barnova, former head of Kiev's cultural department, said about Russia, in their opinion, we're some kind of appendage to the Russian Empire. Accordingly, there is nothing of ours. And what there is must be destroyed so that it does not exist. But, thankfully, Maria's work does exist, and it will continue to exist as a embodiment of Ukrainian creativity and hope. And her work has been celebrated with the national highest honor for the arts. And she got that in her lifetime when she was 57. She saw it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that was in 1966. Yay! Um, she has been featured on commemorative coins. Her work mm-hmm. has been featured on stamps. And she even had a Ukrainian scientist who studies planets name a planet after her. Stop. Yeah, and like I mentioned, there's like a family foundation that, you know, has been maintaining Maria's collection of work and her public image through outreach and fundraising. Yeah. And especially with the war going on right now, it seems like they've definitely pivoted towards commercializing Maria's designs with designers in order to raise money for the war effort. Yeah. Oh. Either for children or for families or for the army itself. Yeah. So I know they were doing um, like hand-tuffed like rugs. Of her mm-hmm. paintings with a company, you know, a like boutique, like clothing designer was making hoodies. Currently, there's a um, small scale ceramic production company that has done like faces and ornaments with her designs. <gasps> you mean I could get her anti-war, anti-nuclear and anti like everything like monsters like their faces on a vase you could yeah i'm totally gonna tag their etsy on our show notes you can directly order from their site but you have to translate it but they also set up like a canadian etsy account too (laughs) which as an american i'm like that's way easier to order from Mm -hmm. i really want one with the the bowl and the eyes and the mustache and the weird funky face teeth thing I want that one. It's it's a fairly limited design, but it's they're a lot of fun. Yeah, so her work, because of the illustrative nature of it, it lends itself really well to being reproduced in things like on clothing or in ceramics or as rugs. So um, what's going on with the two chickens? What is she what is she stating with the two chickens? You know what? I don't know about that one. That's one I stared at because I was like, this is fun. And then I looked at the title and I was like Oh, it's a chicken. I would have never guessed that. So (laughs) you obviously are a little bit more intuitive with her sense of animals than I am. (laughs) What? That 
clearly doesn't say chicken to you. I like, I wasn't sure. I just, I, I think I'm just remembering it as like a really warm color scheme. And then also I want to say scalloped edges in the design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what resonates with me, the artist. Oh my Instead God. Instead of trying to work out the biological structure and like, what is this animal most likely to be? <laughs> Maria per- Primachenko chicken, chicken painting. It's called, it just says two-headed chicken. That's the name of it. I think there's a gap in title sometimes just because the language barrier. And again, there hasn't been like a full transition or full translation of her work into English just yet. But of course, we'll include some of this in our, in our show notes along with everyone so you guys can see the fuchsia bull or the two-headed chicken. So yeah, so that's Maria Primachenko. That's what I got for today. That is an elephant wearing a sailor's hat. Okay, please find the one where there's like a little green lizard riding another animal. Okay, I will definitely find it. And there's another (laughs) one. It's a marriage scene where I think a rabbit and another animal are getting married by like birds. Oh, oh, I found the marriage one. Yeah, that one's really fun too. I want to say that one's like a late 1970s. Oh, it's cute. I like it. It's a a rabbit and a... I, I don't know. It's like mostly black, but it has like a green mohawk and it's thrown me yeah, off. Yeah, there's lots of mohawks within her work. <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm loving these. I could scroll through these all day. Although I'm very grateful that her family is using her work to do like to do anti-war effort. You know what I mean? Like, yes. Um, and this past year there's one work in particular of maria's that has become an international symbol of support for ukraine Mm -hmm. so you know again it's work on paper on a soft yellow background where it's filled with these stylized red tulips and then in the center is this white dove like tattooed with blue patterns reminiscent of maria's mother's embroidery work it's like flying across the paper and that one's titled a dove has spread her wings and asked for peace oh i see this one yeah oh that's so that one's been used a lot and created and as public works to help spread awareness and peace for ukraine so we'll see so that's what happens we take one year off from podcasting and war breaks out starts i know (laughs) And we thought we were finally over with the pandemic stuff, and then we got this. Everything is on fire around us. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Do you know that that meme is, like, 10 years old now? Is it? (laughs) Yep. Yep. NPR just recently interviewed the creator of that work. You did? No, NPR. NPR just recently interviewed the creator of that work. (laughs) Yeah. That's my other secret podcast you don't know about. Oh, my goodness. I mean, but with the amount of social media stuff that we don't do for this podcast, it might as well be a secret. (laughs) Nobody knows about us. But it's a secret that you guys are listening to, which also includes Milena's mom. Hi, mom. My mom gave up ages ago. All right. Well, Uh, as always, thank you guys for being here. We really appreciate it. Thanks for your patience. I mean, yeah, you've only been waiting like a year. Like, we only ghosted you guys. <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. We're here. That's what matters. It's a passion project. God damn it. We love you. We love you guys. We, we love this project. We missed each other so much. We were like, <laughs> I know. it was real bad. Special moments between us. Mm-hmm. Guys, last year was awful. I saw her all of three times. Yeah, last year we both had a lot going on. I know, Milena, you're about to clock another degree. I... I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) 
New year, new us. All right. Well, Milena, if people want to see visuals of your donut earth picture you sent me or this fuchsia eyeballed monster, uh, where can they go to? Look, you need to see these monsters. To find out They're more. great. We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. We have an Instagram, myfavoritefeminist. And you can listen to us, well, where you're listening to us now. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, all of the above. All right. Until next time, guys. Bye. I'm watching a fat chihuahua be a bodyguard for a bearded dragon. Wow, I'm so glad you're riveted to my descriptions well, of you were genocide like- <laughs> and, <No. laughs> and slaughter. We haven't even gotten to the Nazis yet, Milana. Come on. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, I, the fat chihuahua man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, kids these days. <laughs>